Welcome to this presentation, Philosophical Reflections on Water. I'm Douglas Borkerman, and I'm the facilitator of this learning object. In what follows, I want to accomplish the following objectives. I'd like to discuss with you the concept of water as a resource, the notion of water and contamination, the concept of water in the ethics of deep ecology, a concept which will be discussed in greater detail as this presentation proceeds, and finally, some notions and ideas about how to live sustainably from an ethical point of view with a particular focus on water usage. Let's first start with water conceived of as a resource. It will probably come as no surprise to you that in the 21st century there's a problem with the availability of water, both globally and regionally. Most sources of information on this issue, including such organizations as the Environmental Protection Agency, do seem to suggest that the availability of water is a vital concern, especially in specific areas throughout the world. This has become a significant issue for human beings, but not only for human beings. It is also a problem for other life forms as well, including both animals and plants. One important item to look at is a situation in which the demand for water outstrips the land's capacity or ability to provide the needed water. The result, of course, is physical scarcity, and this issue is now a highly publicized event throughout the world. As you can see, these images simply depict situations that can arise when demand outstrips supply. The Colorado River Basin in the United States of America can be considered to be a good example of a seemingly abundant source of water being overused, and this can lead to very serious physical water scarcity downstream when, in its northern origins, it is dammed up and diverted. This potential overuse began many years ago in the 19th century, as a matter of fact, when plans were made to try to divert the mighty Colorado in order to provide fertile fields and to grow crops in otherwise arid terrain. Much of the river water is diverted to Southern California to the dry Imperial Valley. But there are certainly other areas that we need to talk about. Take a look at this map for just a moment. Though there are areas in the world where water shortage is not a big problem, there are other places in the world where it is a very significant issue, and that's something that I think we need to take into consideration. If you take a good look at what is called the American Southwest, there's a significant amount of physical water scarcity, and this would include places such as Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, as well as Texas. Southern California is now suffering a drought, as has been documented quite recently in local newspapers. If you cross the Atlantic Ocean to Africa, you'll notice that there's a significant amount of what we call economic water scarcity. That concept has to do with the fact that people simply don't have enough money or resources to have water brought to them, which is a slightly different issue than just outright physical water scarcity, but, nevertheless, it is a problem that tends to eventuate in the same kinds of issues, namely drought and, of course, hunger and thirst. Crops cannot be grown, and people ultimately starve. It is a vital element of water that is needed by all human beings, plants, animals, and ecosystems. Another issue to take into consideration when talking about this precious substance is water pollution. Typical sources of water pollution include such things as sewage, groundwater contamination, oxygen depletion, and chemical pollution and contamination as well. I'm sure that many of you who have ever traveled roadways after a storm or visited a beach after a heavy rain will notice that a significant amount of debris is washed up or runs along in canals and gutters. This is a big problem insofar as most drainage systems eventually end up emptying into the ocean 
while much of it ends up in underground water reserves, which would ordinarily be considered to be freshwater sources. Such activity can lead to sickness in human beings if the water is unfiltered prior to consumption. A concept that might be a little bit different than what you have been exposed to previously is the idea of water as intrinsically valuable or as having inherent worth. When you treat water only as a resource, you see it as something that provides a useful service to human beings, animals, and plants, for example, in the growth of crops and of the feeding of cattle. When you treat water, perhaps even the air is intrinsically valuable, you are not talking so much about what it can do for you or me or a group of human beings who need it desperately to live, of course, but instead you're viewing it as having some additional value independent of our usage of it. This leads us to the principle of treating a resource like water more as an aesthetic, natural object. While ethics is a branch of philosophy covering issues about what we should do and what our obligations are, aesthetics covers notions such as what is beautiful and why. Natural landscapes appeal to us as beautiful scenes. So it may be possible to experience water as having value over and above its mere instrumental value as a resource. To focus a little bit more on this concept, I've selected the philosophical movement known as Deep Ecology, and I think that we can initiate our discussion by referring to this little quotation by the famous author Fritjof Capra. Ecology and spirituality are fundamentally connected because deep ecological awareness ultimately is spiritual awareness. What happens in terms of the perspective of deep ecology is that humans and nature are seen to be part of a continuum. So we can now begin to consolidate a variety of things. As opposed to treating human beings as separate entities, objects, or even subjects in a world which is typically viewed as wholly distinct from humans, we actually begin within the deep ecological orientation with a philosophical point of view to start talking about the intimate connections that exist between human beings, plants, animals, and even the earth itself. The wellsprings of the concept of deep ecology, of course, come from the notion first and foremost that there is a need for an ethical dimension in a relationship to nature. And, in this discussion of conservation and preservation and appreciation for nature, the famous author Rachel Carson, whose book Silent Spring, written in the 60s, outlined what was happening to contaminate the nation's fresh water with DDT and other toxins affecting otherwise pristine streams. Basically, Carson argued for the idea that we should try to protect our groundwater, streams, aquifers, and other natural resources by eliminating or at least cutting down radically on the kinds of dangerous additives that are utilized in agriculture. It almost goes without saying that Thoreau's Walden and many of the principles that were contained in that wonderful book are certainly lying behind the scenes when we talk about deep ecology and the relationship between human beings and the environment. In addition, deep ecology draws some of its inspiration from Buddhist Taoist thinking. For the most part, you can capsulize, without oversimplifying it too much, the environmental view of Buddhists and Taoists by noting that the human self, on this view, is more connected to nature than we might think. That what it is to be called the self is really not an abstract notion which is entirely cut off from nature, even despite the fact that we do have what can be called a skin-encapsulated self that seems to separate us from the world. The Buddhist Taoist notion is that the self is far more intimately connected to nature and that the skin, your flesh, 
actually is a conduit for connection to the outside world. From Norwegian philosopher Arne Ness, we get the fundamental view and orientation that sets up the deep ecology movement. Here's a quotation from the philosopher. Within deep ecology, you experience a deepening of the self in the sense that you have in your mind this constant kind of attitude that what you do is part of your self-realization and whatever you do, you do it in what we call an integrated person. What Mr. Ness says in essence is much like what the Buddhist Taoist would probably tell us to do. Pay close attention to what it is we do, whether emailing, riding a bike, or walking in nature. We actually ought to do these things in such a fashion that we are fully integrated, and that includes having an awareness, perhaps a much deeper awareness, rather than a seemingly superficial one, of our environment, particularly our natural environment. Experiencing the connectedness of water, air, and earth, and appreciating the inherent value and beauty of this natural scene. I would like to discuss now the principles of deep ecology and hope that you will think about whether or not you could apply some of them or at least think about them in order to conduct your own research at the end of this presentation. The first principle is the well-being and flourishing of human and non-human life on earth have value in themselves. These values are independent of the usefulness of the non-human world for human purposes. Now therein lies a contrast that I made earlier between valuing something in and of itself and valuing something as a resource for our utilization. The next principle, the richness and diversity of life forms, contribute to the realization of these values that are also values in themselves. So, biodiversity, for example, leads to the realization of values that are somewhat instrumental and at the same time of intrinsic or inherent worth. The next principle is, humans have no right to reduce its richness and diversity except to satisfy vital needs. This of course means that if something is construed to be vital to the human condition, and this would include satisfying important nutritional requirements, living a sustainable lifestyle, acquiring clothing, shelter, and no doubt many other things such as the pursuit of happiness, just to name a few. When we consider all of these things together, then we realize that it is true that humans will have some impact on the environment but they will do so in such a fashion as to reduce the excesses that are not associated with vital needs. Admittedly, you have to take a look at the term vital and to try to define it. I deliberately leave it undefined in hopes that you will be able to determine for yourself what the concept of vital or vitality means. Clearly, when it comes to water usage, the deep ecology questions to ask are, how much do I use? Am I wasting it? Am I using it to the excess? Am I depriving other life forms of their share? Am I destroying the ecosystem or a pristine landscape? The next principle is the flourishing of human life and cultures is compatible with the substantial decrease of the human population. The flourishing of non-human life demands such a decrease. If there is a highly controversial issue associated with deep ecology, aside from its bias towards treating things as a value in and of themselves, independent of us, it would likely be this statement. It is very controversial in the sense in which there are many thinkers who believe that the Earth is not really currently overpopulated. There are also those who believe that there are certain areas of the world in which the population is highly concentrated, living in a specific locale, and adversely affecting various of the Earth's ecosystems. If overpopulation is a problem, the proverbial tragedy of the commons simply suggests that the more human beings utilize non-renewable and scarce resources, water being among them, 
and those resources begin to become depleted, the human lifestyle, the sense of a happy and flourishing life, all begin to be affected radically. Indeed, deep ecology asks us also to consider the situation of other life forms as well. So not everybody can live in a congested area, for example, and continue to utilize the non-renewable and or scarce resources of the area without consideration for all the living beings in that environment. And here's another principle to ponder. Present human interference with the non-human world is excessive and the situation is rapidly worsening. There are many instances brought to public attention recently of the plight of the polar bear, for example. Many animal species have gone or are going extinct. Whales certainly have been hunted almost to the point of extinction in some cases, and many other species have gone extinct primarily because of what we call anthropogenic causes, that is, of human origin. Human activity, such as damming water reservoirs, diverting water sources for crops, and contaminating aquifers, can threaten habitats and lead to the termination of a species. The excessive use of the land and the misuse and mishandling of water resources by humans can interfere with animal well-being. Moreover, it can upset the equilibrium of an ecosystem and create ugliness in an otherwise aesthetically valuable landscape. This brings us to yet another principle. Those who subscribe to the foregoing points have an obligation directly or indirectly to try to implement the necessary change. This, of course, brings us to some really interesting ethical considerations, such as, what should we do? That is certainly an ethical question. What should we do if we believe the previous principles, and perhaps some of you do? If so, we are required to do something from a moral point of view. We ought to go out and change, and promote the change in some of our behaviors. This means not simply thinking about it, but actually trying to implement the appropriate steps to take in order to bring procedures to life and the means of which we might be able to correct the situation. One conclusion it would seem to follow according to deep ecology is that policies need to be changed. These policies affect basic economic, technological, and ideological structures. The resulting state of affairs will be deeply different from the present. Our collective use and abuse of the environment, overuse or misuse of water and fossil fuel, may partially be a product of the lack of respect for intrinsic value of various resources such as water and the ecosystems of which these resources are a part. The ideological change is mainly in appreciating life quality rather than adhering to an increasingly higher standard of living. There will be a profound awareness of the difference between big and great. When philosopher Ness says that there will be a profound awareness of the difference between big and great, he seems to imply that this concerns also the concept of living more simply or sustainably. Ask yourself the question, what is or what does it mean to say that you have a high standard of living? Well, among the things that are often reckoned are income per capita, lifespan, leisure time, health, and the ability to consume products. These are some of the things that have to do with how we should live, and there are probably many others. Not everybody agrees on what a good standard is or entails, but quality of life and how to live simply and effectively have been discussed by philosophers through the ages. One idea about quality of life coincidentally uses the idea of water as a metaphor. It is expressed this way by Lao Tzu from the Tao Te Ching. 
The highest virtue is like that of water. The excellence of water appears in its benefiting all things and in its occupying, without striving, the low place which all men dislike. And hence it is near the Tao. What Lao Tzu probably means by the virtue of being like water is that water is of essential vital importance to all things, to fauna, to flora, to soil, rivers, and the ecosystems, to the biomass, to the lithosphere, and the hydrosphere. Water is not only seen to be of such physical importance, but it has certain almost ethical characteristics which, according to some philosophers, we might want to consider emulating in our own behavior. To be like water and exhibit beneficence, humility, suppleness, and universality might well be aspirations worthy of many saints. I would like now to talk about the ethics of conservation and preservation. I will guide what I have to say here with a quote from the very famous mountaineer philosopher and nature spiritualist John Muir. Take course in good water and air, and in the eternal youth of nature you may renew your own. Go quietly alone. No harm will befall you. A beautiful ascetic notion with some spiritual connotations associated with it from John Muir. Muir, as you may know, basically was able to chart the terrain of the Sierras and many other isolated wild places. During his life in the 19th and early 20th century, he was significantly responsible for helping to save Yosemite Valley from becoming an underwater fantasy land. There were plans to convert Yosemite Valley into a dam, a resource for human usage, and, had it not been for the efforts of activists like Muir, the valley would, today, be completely submerged. Muir recognized the great beauty and inherent value of mountains, streams, and rocky ridges like Yosemite's half-dome. Obviously, recognizing that human beings need water in order to survive, Muir nevertheless possessed a balanced, respectful perspective regarding its use as well as its moral and aesthetic value. So, Muir was a preservationist, that is, a person who seeks to preserve the land, the water, the animals, the plants, because these are seen as having inherent value, independent of their use as resources. When we talk about preservation or conservation, we certainly should mention the concept of the land ethic as conceived by the eco-philosopher, park ranger, conservationist Aldo Leopold, who, in the mid-20th century, had a significant impact upon the way the national park system views its operations with respect to recreational usage of water and land. Aldo Leopold is quoted as having said, All ethics so far evolved rests upon a single premise, that the individual is a member of a community of interdependent parts. The land ethic simply enlarges the boundaries of the community to include soils, waters, plants and animals, or collectively, the land. So, on this view, water is an essential component of the community at large in that a community includes flora, the fauna, water, land, and clearly other human beings. It might also be argued that he would have included things such as mountains and forests in the community as well. The moral community looked at in this context can be viewed in the following way. In a typical ethical situation, we primarily talk about the relationship of human to human. I like to use the equation, self plus other equals ethics. If we expand our community to include what Leopold refers to, then we have self plus other, both human and non-human, equals environmental ethics, both human and non-human aspects of the environment, 
the biosphere, the lithosphere, the atmosphere, etc., and the natural environment altogether equal the web of life. That is, the moral community. You can see that the implications of this view would be that when we seem to recognize that it's important for us to respect other human beings, to recognize our obligations to other human selves, that expanding the moral community to include other entities, both live and not alive, would give us a bit of an extremely extended moral family. As John Muir once said, when we try to pick out anything by itself, we find it hitched to everything else in the universe. And now to talk a little bit about moral obligations, we can describe the waterland ethic in this way. What is morally right is what tends to promote the flourishing of a habitat or ecosystem. That which is morally wrong is what harms the integrity of that system. Water is essential to the biomass, to the processes that promote and sustain life. Mismanaging, misusing, and contaminating fresh water would be among the things counted as wrong on this view. If we have that principle in mind, then at least one of our obligations would be the following. To respect the environment, acknowledging that we are living in a broader community that includes humans, plants, animals, earth, and water. On this view, we would also have obligations to future generations, to the unborn. Admittedly, it might be a little bit difficult to think of having an obligation to something that is yet to exist, but it is largely, I suppose, a matter of trying to see this issue in a time frame that is more expansive than the one we happen to inhabit. It is said that the Iroquois Indians made decisions based upon the future impact to the seventh generation from the present. It would be wise indeed to consider the state of resources, the likely deficit of fresh water, and the expected extinction of species, not to mention the scarcity of pristine wilderness in the world of future generations. Given what has preceded, we may now propose the following water ethic. Act so as to improve the environment and assure enough water for future generations to flourish. And this would conduce to something I would like to refer to as ecosystemic sustainability. Clearly there are many different kinds of ecosystems. Desert ecosystems, forest ecosystems, and watery ecosystems. There's also the food chain wherein the consumers presumably are at the peak. Ultimately, systemic sustainability means that, given the principles of deep ecology, all the denizens and entities that thrive within an eco-niche should be treated with respect as having some value in and of themselves, as having some legitimate claim to their own life and sense of well-being, even if they cannot consciously articulate it the way in which human beings or rational creatures might be able to do. In terms of the broader moral community we spoke of earlier, this means sharing resources deliberately in such a way as to help promote the best interests of all members of that community. One method that we might employ in order to do these things is to keep in mind a set of practical guidelines as we try to realize ecosystemic sustainability. Very simply, this would be to live simply. And this includes something that is called green shopping. 
Green shopping would simply be shopping for organic foods that are produced in such a fashion as to minimize the detrimental impact on the environment. That would include buying certain items that have not been produced using an excessive amount of pesticides or fertilizers. Green building involves using materials that have been produced in such a fashion again so as to minimize harmful impact to the environment. Consuming less. This is a difficult one for all of us, myself included, especially at holiday time, where the seasonal shopping and buying seems to be a kind of fever that can occasionally infect you and spread to others. When you buy, from whom do you buy? Do you ever stop and think about really needing various items? I think that the philosophical attitude is to consider how it fits into your sustainable lifestyle and whether it enhances your standard of living. How that particular item that you are going to purchase actually functions to promote your own flourishing while at the same time preserves the environment. It would be useful to consider the true cost of an item as opposed to its stated price. One example of measuring the true cost is to determine what resources are actually involved in its production. How much water is required to grow potatoes, apples, cabbage, or a pound of bacon? How much irretrievable water was used to produce a computer chip in your laptop? It is surprising to see the figures. Increasing environmental awareness helps to recognize the interconnectedness of those things living and thriving in the environment with human beings and other creatures that thrive within it. We can capitalize on the knowledge that we gain from our observations and experience of health systems, thereby increasing our awareness and presumably helping us to begin to dwell upon the earth with more efficiency and greater respect. And of course, lastly, respecting the inherent value of nature, water, earth, trees, mountains, and ecosystems, which tends to be a more aesthetic and spiritual enterprise, not something that everybody necessarily will agree with, admittedly. But when you put these things all together, it would seem to be a fairly good formula for actually achieving a balanced, sensible, and philosophical approach to living.